You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, and today we'll be talking to Emily Solari, a professor at the University of Virginia, and Carrie Coiner, a Virginia State Delegate. They are going to tell us all about the Virginia Literacy Act. They will share what this legislation includes, the work that it took to get it passed, what it means for districts, schools, and universities, and how this will change the way students learn to read in Virginia. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We are so excited because our two guests today changed the science of reading legislation to science of reading over the last few years, and they did it right near us. So we are thrilled (laughs) to have them on the podcast. Yeah, it's possible, right? It's possible. It's possible. (laughs) So we have Emily Solari, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, and Carrie Coiner, who's a delegate for the Virginia House of Delegates. And they're going to talk to us today about a bill that put, they can correct me if I'm wrong, but $70 million toward changing colleges of education, curriculum and materials and professional learning, um, all to follow the science of reading in Virginia. Yay. So exciting. <laughs> yeah, we're so glad you're here. And I think the best place to start would be to tell us a little bit about yourselves. And I'm going to say, how did you become these like badass reading science advocates? So I'm going to first turn it to Carrie because you're closest to me on the screen. So go ahead. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Lori and Melissa, for having us. And hopefully we can share what we learned so that more folks can advocate and improve literacy in their communities too. So that's always our goal is to share so that more people have an easier path forward for our teachers and students. So I am a legislator in Virginia. I just finished my third year. Um, So I'm relatively new, um, but prior to serving in the House of Delegates, I served on a local school board for eight years. And I have three kids who are now teenagers who all came up through Chesterfield County Public Schools, um, attended a Title I elementary school where most of their classmates, English was was a second language for growing up. And so I was really able to walk alongside and experience um, a lot of the struggles of um, our learners who tend to be in our gap subgroups where they are already a step behind when they get started. And so uh, reading and literacy was always on my radar. Um, I ran for the House of Delegates because I'm passionate about public education. And so um, the first year there, I worked on um, having a shift away from high stakes testing to moving towards more growth measurements, and then um, started with that legislation working with UVA Law School Public Policy Clinic. And I was really, really blessed to be assigned law school students to help with research across the country to look at best practices, to see what other states have done and how we move forward with positive bipartisan legislation. And so the following year, um, we started looking at our, our reading scores and really saying, all right, what can we do to impact literacy in Virginia? And as I was meeting with the law school clinic, we were talking about who do we bring on as experts in literacy. And I was really lucky that a leading expert in 
science of reading was at the exact same university where I was partnering with the law school. So that's how I met Emily Solari um, at the UVA um, School of Education there and was able to ask her to come in and partner with us um, around the expertise that we needed in this area. Very serendipitous, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. Yeah. Emily, would you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am definitely not new to science of reading or scientifically based (laughs) reading research. This has sort of defined the entirety of my career in higher education and um, really thinking about my work has really been focused on thinking um, about how do we get all children to learn how to read and not just learn how to read to comprehend what they're reading because that's Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal of reading. Um, And so that is my true north when I think of all the things that I do and the decisions that I make every day and who to engage with and who to talk to and where can I make the biggest impact. Those are the things that I'm thinking about. And when this opportunity came to me and I was approached to um, collaborate on a state level policy around um, making sure that all children have access to evidence-based literacy instruction, I was 100% on board and very eager um, to collaborate. Um, Emily, I'm going to keep asking you questions for just a second, because Lori and I talk all the time about like our own, um, you know, in our own experiences at the college level and graduate level and what we didn't learn there, what we wish we had learned there. Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about like your experience at University of Virginia and how you helped maybe help them shift towards the you used a really great term that I liked. Was it scientifically based reading research? Based reading research. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also, write that also down. defined, defined in the <laughs> literacy. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I think you're not unique. I think we know this that a lot of teachers in recent years have felt some frustration over the. Um, the training that they got when they went through their elementary credential program or their special education credential program. And sometimes our reading specialists are feeling a bit frustrated that the the instruction that they got and the training that they received was not based in sort of the scientific knowledge of what we know about how children learn how to read. And so um, I've only been at University of Virginia for four years, um, but when I arrived at UVA, um, I very much that was where my headspace was. I, I knew coming into the program um, that we had really wonderful and talented people in our teacher education program and in our reading program, um, but also that we need to take a really critical look at how we were training and preparing teachers around literacy specifically. And so we engaged in that process um, and um, collaborated around um around changing what we were doing to make sure that we are aligned to science, um, to ensure that it's to, to ensure that our students know how to teach kids how to read both foundational skills and the importance of oral language development for comprehension and background knowledge. Um, and also um, that they're engaging with students, real breathing students, which was a little bit of a challenge during the pandemic, that um, really teaching kids, taking an evidence-based curriculum and working one-on-one with children who are having difficulty learning how to read so they have that experience before they leave our program, which is really yeah, very I would have important. loved that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so we, we did a lot of, of work um, there um, collaboratively, collaboratively with colleagues at UVA. That's amazing. I think... What strikes me about that work is that it was so focused and I'm, I don't know if you're making it sound so much cleaner and focused than it actually was, or if it really was that, because 
I just think about all of the moving pieces at the collegiate level that could get in the way and really give you big kudos to staying focused on that specific lens and then kind of what I'm envisioning, having everything funnel into that, right? Like I just, I'm picturing lots of conversations where people are like, but what about when they go to teach small groups? What about early literacy? What about this? What about that? And you could have a million whatabouts, but when our foundation is, kids need to learn how to read in school and everything comes under that bucket. It is, it feels so much cleaner. So I'm not sure if it was as clean as that, or you're just really good at articulating like a clean as you think it is looking back. But I think, you know, I have to give kudos also to the leadership of the school of education um, because without that support um, from our, our, from the Dean level down to, um, to ensuring that this was happening, that we were, we were able to move this way. We wouldn't have been able to, to, to do it. Um, but yeah, I think here's the thing is that every educator, if you're a higher ed or in elementary school or, you know, you know, an administrator, we all want children to learn how to read, learn how to read. There's nobody out there who doesn't. And I think if you, if you come back to that, like that is our goal here, you can get people to buy in and think about, um, modifying, changing practices, um, and sort of switching, you know, what they're doing. Um, and always coming back to that and no shame and no blame, right? This is about moving forward. Yeah. I love that. So I know that I I think we should kind of shift over to Carrie now, if that's okay, Carrie, we know, um, there was legislation that, that helped to take this to a very expansive level. Um, and, and I'm like, pushing my arms out wide because I'm picturing, you know, this, this legislation encompassing like birth to (laughs) post collegiate (laughs) to our teachers who are in the field now. So, um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that piece of legislation, what's involved. Um, and then I'm hoping we can talk even a little bit about how it compares with what other States have done or are currently doing. Sure. Happy to share. So, you know, looking at all of the different pieces that it takes to improve literacy and there is no one lever, right? So there's different things you can pull and it makes some impact, but if you truly want to change the outcomes for kids, you got to pull many levers at the same time, right? And so what we saw through the law students research of other states is some states had pulled on some levers, like some had said, we're going to impact college prep and for teachers. And then others pulled the lever and said, we're going to change our curriculum. And then others pulled the lever and said, we're going to do professional development. Um, But what we found is that if you really wanted to have a holistic approach to literacy improvement and see the best results, all of them had to be pulled at the same time, which involves a lot of different stakeholders. You know, I think one of the reasons that some states only tackled some aspects at a time is because you have a much more limited group of people to get buy-in from. But what we saw between our K through two um, reading data that we had before the pandemic, and then what we saw from the pandemic, those virtual years, which just exponentially made our our students um, fall even further behind in reading, we felt like we had to pull all the levers at the same time. And it was worth engaging the many stakeholders it took to gain buy-in and support. And a general consensus that this was going to be very hard, but it was worth it. And it may not be perfect, 
but we would keep working together to improve our, our path forward. So that's what we started from. Um, and those we, you know, we really called them levers because that's what we said we were pulling for kids. Um, so, you know, one is that teacher prep program and getting our colleges and universities on board and ensuring we have teachers ready to step into the classroom, um, feeling confident that they know how children will learn to read and can do that. Um, the second was really aligning our curriculum, our interventions, our screening tools, aligning everything to scientifically based reading research and putting that into practice with the tools that we're using. Uh, the third was looking at our, our school staff in K through two and K through three, really looking at through those years to have the support they need for quality professional development, consistent statewide professional development so that teachers moving from district to district and kids moving from district to district had consistency and practices in classrooms. And then last and equally as important was that parent engagement lever, you know, that knowing that this is what we're doing in our classrooms and that if your child is identified as needing additional supports, we're going to empower you as the parent to know what those needs are and to be a part of that journey of ensuring your child is is at grade level. So we tackled all of those. And again, each of those components has a group of important stakeholders who care about that particular issue. And we took on the task of engaging them all up front and keeping them engaged and working with us and giving us feedback throughout the entire legislative process. Can I just say really quickly, they're all super important, but as you know, thinking back to my teaching years of the professional learning, I just, it always felt so like, just, you know, we have a PD day and someone came up with something to do during this day. And just hearing you talk about like it being actually thought out and so thought out that like, even if you move to a different district, you would still be kind of on the same path. That just kind of blew my mind a little bit. (laughs) You know, I think it's one of those balancing things that, you know, when, when we have conversations about like, what do we want different localities and different places to be able to do on their own? And what are important of things that we need consistency, right? That you still have voice and choice, but the, the, the research and the instruction behind it is going to be consistent. And so this was one of those things that our, our stakeholders all agreed. Like there, we can have some choices and other things, but the baseline of what we're all going to be trained in and understand and kids learning will be consistent. So, and I think that's important too, because kids are moving so much more today than a generation ago, right? You kind of like started in elementary school. And I looked back at my, um, with my daughter, my elementary school yearbooks, and I had the same kids in my class. <laughs> like, yeah, every that's year a good point. <laughs> and, and my kids never have the same kids, right? Like everyone's so much more mobile now. And so that consistency within our, our Commonwealth, uh, we found was really important so that kids were able to just continue that learning process. Yeah, what's striking me is the thing that Emily said, as well as what you just said, that you had those same foundational pieces. And then like there, there could be a little bit of movement in there, but it is still the same grounding principles, the same foundational components. So we're not, you know, I'm sit, I'm a teacher sitting in that professional learning day. And um, whether I'm in one, do you call them counties in Virginia? Yes. Yeah. So like one county or another county, um, I'm, I'm still receiving the same grounding principle and the same maybe like objectives or outcomes, but the way that it's 
being presented might be a little bit different. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's exactly what it looks like, but I like that idea of consistency. And I, I also really appreciate you mentioning both for teachers and students. I think it's really important that we honor educators like that and honor our students and, and respect everyone who's, and I mean, it's just so respectful of everyone involved. So I, I appreciate you mentioning both of those groups as really important stakeholders here. I'm wondering if um, we might be able to talk about the process a little bit, because I have in my head, <laughs> you know, the um, Schoolhouse Rock, how Bill becomes a law, and <laughs> seems like a really daunting like process. Being around on the steps of the courthouse, it feels a That's little exact- bit like that. That's the image. So... <laughs> Um, how, how did this go from concept to legislation? Can you take us through the process? Sure. Well, I can start and then Emily can kind of fill in because, um, you know, I cannot tell you how fortunate I was as a legislator to have the UVA law school clinic for state and local government. Um, you know, it is very hard. We are not a full-time legislative body in Virginia. This is supposed to be very part-time. And so we don't have the staff or the background to do research and to draft. We rely on the state-appointed legislative help that we get for drafting bills. So when I met with the UVA Law School Clinic and they brought Emily in as part of our expert, you know, we really worked together initially as a team very, very early on before we did anything else to say, all right, what does the framework look like? And then we really, I kicked it back to the law school clinic and they were able to utilize Emily and under, and also gaining more access to other experts in, in her field to then draft and pull together a draft bill. And we went through so many drafts, you know, and I think that is um, what I would encourage folks about the process. You know, before you start engaging a whole lot of people, it's important to figure out, you know, like we had a white paper that we had worked on and drafted with all of our research listed in it and, you know, where we saw successes and where there were failures, you know, where states didn't have the success that they thought they would and why. And, why we thought addressing all of these components at the same time was important. And I, I did not, I did not physically draft that, right? I was relying on this amazing clinic that, that loaned me law school students. Uh, and that's what they did. You know, they worked with their professors and with Emily to create that. So, and I'll kick it off to Emily because she was involved with the students. You know, they were constantly asking her questions and picking her brain and helping So I'll take it off to her to share her experience in the drafting of the initial bill. Yeah, I think what Carrie says is really important. It certainly was a team effort, um, you know, and so the students were extremely valuable, as were the other folks who work in in the law clinic. Um, And, you know, the other thing we did that I think is important is we relied on the data. So, you know, Virginia has a wealth of data. We have tracked um, K-2 literacy for the last 20 years in Virginia. We've screened with the same measure across almost every single school division. And so, and that's unique, right? So that's not common. And so we were able to look at that data and be like, hey, on top of the white paper, we also need an awareness campaign about what the data are saying for for our children across the Commonwealth, well, in particular children who aren't doing so well in reading and sort of making the... 
the why, why are we doing this, right? The, the argument for the why I think was really very important because we could say, yeah, like the pandemic has had a not great effect on students' literacy, but also we weren't really hitting it out of the park before the pandemic. And so this is not just a pandemic issue. This is a much broader issue around reading in Virginia and literacy development. So it was really drafting, under, thinking as a group, what is the why? How do we sort of make that argument? And then how? what are what are other states doing to respond to this? And how can we use, um, learn from those states, frankly, about what worked for them and what didn't? We, I mean, there were, we had conversations where I think almost every time we had a conversation with a, another state, I said, okay, so hindsight's 2020, tell me what went wrong. So that we mm-hmm. could learn from their process and um, and sort of anticipate um, what what we need, really sort of look toward the future and like kind of anticipate what was going to happen as much as you can, because you cannot on everything, of course. Yeah. And, and we were always also having to think about, you know, we had the draft bill, we had the white paper that had all the research behind it, but then we also very intentionally crafted a one-page flyer, right? Because there we all like different people take in information differently, right? Some of us are just like, put it on one piece of paper. That's all I'm going to look at. And then other people want all the research and details. And some people want to read the full bill. And so that was really important. We spent a lot of time figuring out if you had to put what the reason to support this on a single sheet of paper, what would you put on there? And what do people need to know? And we spent a lot of time circulating in um, you know, our marketing and in media and sharing with legislators and stakeholders that one page flyer. And that was extremely important. I learned that lesson from the growth um, bill that I said I had brought three years before. Like people didn't want to read 25 pages of research. I do, but the average person does not. Um, so that was something else that was really important. Oh, that's so good. I just I'm taking notes for Maryland, by the way. <laughs> One page. What do we need to know? <laughs> I what what I think strikes me is that you went you went all out. You went for everything at once. And I think like what I am thinking about our state in the past, the the things that have been passed here have really addressed small amounts of time. Now, not to say these are not important things that have been passed. They're very important and they're steps in the right direction. So, but what I'm thinking about is that they've addressed small amounts of time. For example, um, I'm thinking about one piece of um, legislation here in Maryland that addresses, you know, the 30 minutes where we're teaching foundational skills in K through two or K through three. And while yes, that is incredibly important, I also think what you what you all did is really important because you addressed that and so much more. So yeah. that's what strikes me is like you really tried to address everything. You weren't like, okay, well, we'll do this one thing. And then like a year from now, we'll do this other thing. And then we'll do this other thing. You're like, we're going all in on this and everything. Yeah, <laughs> Emily, I, I see I you would, nodding. You want to add? Yeah. yeah. So I think the one important piece here is sort of my take on this is, you know, often when I'm interviewed or giving talks, people say to me, what is the one thing you would change to make literacy achievement better or whatever in, in the United States? And I always resist that question. I say that there, I, I, there is not one thing. You cannot do one thing and see that. change. I will not respond to your question because there are multiple levers that had to be pushed at the same exact time in order to do that. And so Carrie mentioned this, but that really was the approach. 
what are all the things that have to be pushed simultaneously in order to see um, change for children? Um, that mm-hmm. you know that was the grounding, right, for teachers and children in their cl- in their classrooms and families. So yeah. um, I think we know that reading is so big. Um, that there's so many things that impact reading outcomes that you can't just you can't just do one thing like a 30 minutes of foundational literacy school. That's mm-hmm. extremely important. It's an extremely important lever, but it but it's not it's not the package. Not right? the only one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think to your point about, you know, in Maryland, you all having small things legislatively that have been done. We have the exact same thing here in Virginia. You know, and I wouldn't minimize those small things. You know, we have a large decoding and dyslexia advocacy community, and they year after year had been making small changes in the literacy world and, you know, advocating for their children who were in need of, of better literacy instruction. And so we were able to learn a lot from the roadblocks that they hit along their journey um, and then we were able to bring stakeholders together in a way um, that they had not been able to because their their focus had been such a smaller area and they didn't have access to as many of the stakeholders. But they were huge for us um, in the work that they had done over the years and meeting with so many different, different senators and delegates and, and groups. They knew what the most important issues were for folks. They knew where they had tried something and it didn't work. So um, those small victories and then their setbacks actually really helped us to figure out um, where to start from and to try to address the things that had not worked well in the past. And they didn't have access to the same amount of research that we did, right? Because like we had the law school clinic and we had folks who had already been doing this work and we, we really brought them along with us early on too. And they were a great guide and help as parent advocates um, for us. So don't, don't, you know, think you can't go from small (laughs) victories to then the holistic. That's really a huge part of how we were able to have so much success. They were, those um, families were extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point. It's like they planted some seeds, right? So they they primed the field for us. They primed the field. Yeah. (laughs) That's a better one. (laughs) They really did. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm wondering if you guys could go into the levers a little bit and tell us a little more of the nitty gritty of like, what, like, what does this bill, or is it a bill? Yes, bill. (laughs) Make sure I'm using the right legal terms. Um, What does it actually say for teacher prep and curriculum and, and staffing? And what, what kinds of changes might schools and schools of education have to make after this, this bill has been passed? Well, it's a law now. So a law. That's right. Law. See? <laughs> so, um, it yeah, is a so law. I'm excited about that. Um, so, you know, the law was passed and then it required a lot of work afterwards. So I think that's also important for folks who are interested in this sort of um, big picture, holistic, pull all the levers approach. Um, you get the bill passed, it becomes law. And then that's when all of the work starts to ensure that um, government doesn't do what it does best, which is take forever to implement. <laughs> and so you also need some <laughs> folks who are willing to stick with it once the law is there to press on government to keep moving forward quickly in implementation. So you don't lose steam and you don't lose engagement and you don't lose stakeholders who are willing to can you continue advocating for you. So um, I would say that's critical. The, um, you know, I'll speak a little bit to 
um, the K-12 stuff world. Um, I know that we have our educator preparation programs. We were a little bit fortunate as a state. They were already um, getting some pressure to change in the areas of teacher prep and assessment work for teachers, K-3 teacher candidates coming out. We were in the middle of the state um, revising those assessments anyway. So it was pretty good timing for us. Um, but again, really ensuring that there's consistency at those um, educator preparation programs was really important. Emily, do you want to add anything to the collegiate level um, aspect of that lever? No, but I might just pop in here to like ground that the, the, the bill and now law define scientifically based reading research and evidence-based literacy instruction. And those definitions go across the bill and, and across the law. And what I mean by that is that um, higher ed has to, is, is, needs to adhere to those definitions as does K to 12, as, you know, as does the content that we are developing for parents and families. So that really does ground across all the different levers. Um, what we mean, like, what do we mean when we're saying, um, scientifically based reading research and evidence-based literacy instruction? So it's sort of this, um, so it goes across all of them. I, I think that, that's actually such a good point, Emily, because, what we found when we were initially drafting and, and, you know, we use the term um, science of reading as, you know, you all have used it too. You see it everywhere out there. But as we've seen from other terms that we've used in education, um, sometimes they lose what we intend as their meaning and someone else decides what they think it means. So we really took a step back and said, rather than using a commonly used term, Let's really define and be specific about what we intend so that there's no question what the intent was. And so you will see consistent language throughout. And there are no terms that, you know, if you would go on social media and click on different things, you know, somebody's using it as a good and somebody's using it as a bad. That's not what we're about. We're about research and we're about. Um, best evidence-based instruction. And so you'll see that throughout it. But the educator preparation programs, some have already been shifting in Virginia. So um, this really, I think, gave their programs, uh, I think, probably a little sigh of relief to be like, okay, we've been trying to struggle to figure out, can everybody kind of do in their own directions what they're doing? But no, we're all going to be on the same page. So I think that was helpful. Um, the second part, really looking at that K-3 aligning curriculum, screening and interventions, um, that always makes local folks nervous, right? Because everybody wants to choose their own, um, stuff, you know, we like having our own, (laughs) our own choices. And, um, we had a, we had a little bit of an ability to provide some um, compromise there where our, at the state level, we're going to do the screenings and we're going to give people, um, a list of what's available and what the choices are, but we're go- going to ensure that they meet the definitions of the law and that you know when you choose from them that you're going to be doing what's best for teachers and students in classrooms. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why that's so important. You know, we have wealthier school divisions in Virginia and we have school divisions who have less. We have school divisions who are big and have lots of employees and staff who can screen materials and make curriculum selection. And we have those that do not. And our teachers and students, regardless of their zip code and the wealth of their division and the expertise that they're able to recruit, um, we felt deserved to know that they were getting the same high quality um, materials, regardless of of where they were in Virginia. So it, it, it really wasn't meant as a 
let's limit what your choices are. It's no, we want you to know that we're guaranteeing you that these meet our goals for reading in Virginia. So that was one that we had some trepidation until we really got into the, you know, what is the purpose of choice Mm -hmm. and what are the benefits of consistency? So I don't know, Emily, if you have anything to add to that piece of it. No, I don't think, I don't think so. I think, you know, um, what's interesting is when I have engaged with people sort of post the bill, the bill passing into law, um, is that there does seem to be some excitement about it. I think there's curiosity of how, how are we actually going to implement this, which is a really, really important question. Um, how is this information going to come (laughs) down from the Virginia department of education? What supports will I have? What is the technical assistance I will have to do this? So there's a lot of, um, maybe some, worry there. But also there's been, you know, pretty wide acceptance. Like this is the path that we need to to be on. We, we you know, people are excited that um that there is there's some some direction, at least at least folks that are reaching out to me. <laughs> Maybe the folks that aren't aren't reaching out. Um but I do think that, you know, it sort of revitalized a conversation around literacy in Virginia that we haven't had in many years, which I think is so important for our, especially for our youngest learners. Mm-hmm. And then we also, you know, the bill contains uh, now law uh, required literacy plans from each of our school divisions. And, you know, accountability is important, one, so that teachers and students know that where you live, that kids are learning to read and that you as the teacher have the tools that you need to teach well in your classroom. But then also there's there's a need and it's a positive for accountability to each other across the Commonwealth so that we can see what's working and then where things are not working, go and help, right? Like when we collect data and we know what you're doing and we can see that it's moving needle for kids, why wouldn't we want that level to share on the flip side? If, you know, we know what you're doing and we're like, man, this is not working for either certain subgroups or students or for everyone we can, in a faster way, step in and say, let's help, you know, let's provide some additional assistance and guidance. And we've never had that as a state, the ability at the state level to um, collect literacy plans from localities and to be able to see where resources are going that, you know, we're spending money and time on, and then to be able to look at data. You know, we've been collecting it for 20 years and have never used it to drive decisions to improve literacy. And so for the first time ever, we're going to use that data to drive assistance going places and to be able to have better conversations going forward about how we continue to improve literacy and move the needle. So that's an exciting component of the law as well. I love that you said that you look at the data to see who needs the support and help. I feel like I've seen in the past where you almost get rewarded if you do well. You know, like if you do well in your data, then you get like more money. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? If <laughs> if they're struggling, they, they, we got to figure out what's going on to, to make to, to make some changes. So um, I love that you all are now looking at the data for that purpose. That's great. That's amazing. So I'm curious just because I feel like, you know, there might be folks out there listening who are wondering about, was there anything that surprised you? <laughs> was there anything that you're like, oh, that was really difficult and I didn't expect it to be difficult or I expected it to be difficult and <laughs> it was. <laughs> Are there any triumphs that you felt like were just great victories, like early on, late on, anything that you can think about that you might want to share with those listening who are going through this or 
wondering about your experience? I will say um, having appropriations and financing staff who understand education funding is very important. You know, we were really, really lucky. Um, and, and, you know, in the House of Delegates, we have um, staff that works through our, our committee is called appropriations. And we are very fortunate that the staff person assigned had worked within the Department of Education and really understood funding had really been following, you know, the COVID money that was coming into school divisions and having that expertise and how to best leverage dollars and understanding, you know, what really needed to be included in long-term spending, um, really having a grasp and understanding of the need for reading specialists and how many we, we needed at this level in order to help support teachers and having someone who has an expertise in, in money, but also understood classroom needs is critical. So I would say if you have are are fortunate enough in your state to have a staff person in the money world who also really understands education, utilize them as a resource to help figure out the pieces of the puzzle because, you know, you have the the bill and what you want to do, but you have to fund it too, right? It's a two piece. It's a, everybody can agree on the policy, but if you can't agree on how to pay for it, you don't get anything done as well. And so I can't, um, say enough how lucky I was that we had someone who really understood um, funding and as well as the experience in the classroom. So um, I think it's important. Hopefully other states have utilized staff um, with that kind of background and expertise in public education in their areas because it was extremely beneficial to us. The other thing I'll say just to, you know, talk a little bit about what how about Carrie and what she did to carry this bill <laughs> um, was, you know, Carrie engaged everybody early and often. And I think that's really very important. Um, we, there were zoom calls and drafts of the, the bill language sent out to stakeholders so they could provide verbal and written feedback um, to which, you know, the team, you know, read through all of it and responded and, you know, had really conversations with people around different ideas. And so this wasn't, um, this wasn't, we're going to submit this bill and then that's it. It really was a conversation with K to 12 and also higher education around what, what was actually in the bill, the exact language. And so I do think, um, that it was a really, really important piece because when you do that, you get, you get buy-in and you get trust and you're collaborating with folks, um, around, around the bill. That's, that's a good point, Emily. I would add to that, um, you know, lessons I learned from my first year, there's all sorts of stuff you learn when you're a new legislator. Um, you know, these are all stakeholders in the same world, right? Every stakeholder cared about public education. We engaged was whether it was a parent group, a teacher group, superintendent group, an elementary school principal group, like all these colleges. And I found that if you put everybody in one Zoom or in one meeting room together, right, not everyone will tell you what they really want to say because they're like, well, I don't want to be judged by someone else who I'm a colleague with, or I don't want to give away what I'm thinking. Such a good or, point. Yeah. What if they don't agree <laughs> with me? And so we did do big group meetings because they were very beneficial. And we did everything via Zoom, which was great. Um, but those big meetings were important because we used it to, you know, tell everybody an update and give everybody the same information at the same time. But we took individual meetings with everyone at least twice. And so I went to each K 
K-12 advocacy group, met with them one-on-one, set up separate groups with our team and with them, were able to hear just their feedback to us and assured them, like, we want to hear from you directly. We're going to have an opportunity for group think, but this is your chance to share with us, you know, your thoughts, your ideas, your concerns that you may not want to share in a group think. And that was, we learned a lot from those individual meetings. So we did that for all the K-12 stakeholder groups, which there was a lot of. And then we offered it to every college and university and teacher preparation program that wanted to meet with us across the Commonwealth. So you can imagine our team, we had hundreds of meetings um, before we ever actually filed the bill and put it in because all of that took place in preparing the draft bill because it is really important in something this large that people who are passionate and care about an issue are part of what you all believe the solution is. And not everyone agreed that it was exactly how they would have done it, right? And we were very clear with people up front, like, this is not going to be exactly what the superintendents think is the perfect bill. This may not be exactly what decoding dyslexia families think is the perfect bill, but we're going to work together for something that is a thousand times better than what we're doing today. And then we will commit to one another that we're going to follow the implementation and talk with one another about where we need to follow up and, and improve things later on. So I think that commitment, people saw that that's what we said we were going to do. And we, we did it throughout the entire process. Like during our legislative session, we would hold Zooms and say, all right, we just got out of House Education Committee. Does anybody have you know anything they feel like we left out or needed to be added? So it was really helpful. And they showed up to all of our hearings when we needed them to, to advocate. So that was good as well. Yeah. Carrie, do you think that that is why, I mean, or maybe part of the reason why there was 100% agreement with the representative, the state representatives when they voted? I mean, I, I also think, I mean, kudos to your transparency there with, hey, the reality of the situation, this might not be a, exactly as you would do it, but we're going to commit that after this gets passed and it is way better than what we have, we're going to work together on this. But do you think that like all of that priming and transparency and honesty is what made it a hundred percent like a yes vote from everyone? Uh, I do think that's a big, I do think it's a big piece of it. You know, um, people told us along the way when we would show up to meetings, like we've never had all of these groups all show up and say they're all supporting something. Um, And again, I think it went back to, you know, when we all are, when you're passionate about something, there's sometimes an inherent mistrust and if some, someone else steps in and tries to fix it or do something, right? And so, um, and government just isn't great at at doing stuff most of the time where groups who are passionate about particular issues, what they would do. So I'm not an expert in literacy. I never said that I was. I was simply a parent who had kids in a Title I elementary school, and I saw what wasn't working for kids all around. Um, and so I think them knowing where I was coming from, that I wasn't, you know, a legislator that had my own idea, my own fix for something, which I didn't, I just knew there was a problem, I needed to find experts who knew what solutions were. And then I needed to listen to other parents who had different experiences from me, right? Like we all needed to be able to hear from one another. And I think that that transparency is what got us all on the same page. And that helps legislators, right? It's really hard as a legislator when there are people in your community who don't like something um, and someone else does. And we worked really hard also to go throughout regions in Virginia and seek out school divisions and parents who were trying to go on this journey. And they were hitting their own roadblocks, right? Because at the state level, it wasn't supported yet. 
And so that was, I think, another critical component is looking at the regional, were there regional leaders? And we were able to um, utilize our decoding and dyslexia and our Virginia PTA to be able to identify school divisions and parent groups and various regions throughout the state who wanted to move in this direction and could help um, deal with fears of change, right? Because no matter what you're doing, it's change for the good. It's still a little scary, right? We, none of us like change. It's like changing my hair. Like you don't like it. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Anything we do, no matter how small, there's this, there's an underlying sense so of fear true. in. And so the, um, the PTAs and, um, the decoding dyslexia families were able regionally to reach out to their networks to say, all right, you're a leader in our region in this. Can you go help us talk to other people in your region? Uh, and that was really helpful to bu- get buy-in because, you know, legislators all represent different parts of the state. And so well, you couldn't do it by yourself. You couldn't say, well, my region wants to do it. You had to have everybody throughout the you know, Commonwealth saying this is going to be hard, but we know the end result is what's best for teachers and kids. Oh, so exciting. I'm literally exhausted just hearing everything that you all did. <laughs> um, but I am going to ask, um, is there anything else coming next? Yes. Are there more bills yes. to come? <laughs> so um, you may ask why K through three, you know, we, we limited it to K through three. And that was a lot. Uh, there was a lot of initial conversation because we all know that we don't just have students behind in reading in kindergarten through third grade. But what we knew is that um, there were sa- the same things that we could do for K through three across the board and consistent. And we we're able to bring that forward. It be, and, and there's some things that we can still do in fourth and fifth grade that are really pretty simple to add on. Middle school years become harder, right? When we have kids who are now taking all sorts of different coursework and their schedule is a little bit harder and you have so many more kids in one building. And so we made the decision to start with K-3, one, in hoping that if we can ensure that more of our children leaving third grade are on grade on that reading level, where it's that shift in, you know, learning to read to reading to learn, that we would use less resources catching kids up in later years. And we would be able to use that funding and those resources to help fewer kids, hopefully, who are behind in those out years. Um, we are looking at our, you know, fourth through eighth grade and where we go moving forward. And eventually we'll need to look at our resources for high school students. You know, just some fundamental things that we know best practice is, you know, having someone who is trained in scientifically based reading research and what instruction looks like in a middle school and the right staffing for the numbers of students that you have who need that instruction and can help a classroom teacher. You know, we don't have teachers who are properly trained um, in our middle schools either. So, you know, that's just one example of looking forward. But it, we did decide we would have the largest impact and we would be able to be very focused if we started K through three. So, um, you know, I'm going to continue working on literacy and how we best support our students who still need supports in our secondary years. We can't wait to hear where this goes. You're going to have to <laughs> fill us in really soon at some point. I know. <laughs> Especially as a former middle school teacher, I'm like dying to know what, what happens at middle school. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're coming to a close and we have some quick response questions for you. So we're going to ask each of you a question and then we'll ask you both the same question, if that's okay. So I'll start off with you, Carrie. What do you love to read? Oh, what do I love to read? 
So I enjoy a lot of self-improvement books, and I also enjoy historical fiction. So Atomic Habits is one of my favorite books. Um, absolutely love it. I just think, you know, we focus so much on bad things that we forget you can develop good habits, just like bad habits. And The Alchemist is one of my all-time um, favorite books. I reread it quite often. But yeah, those are my two genres I, I read a lot. Same. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Emily, different question. What do you love to watch? <laughs> this is a dangerous question. So maybe people don't know this know. about me, but when <laughs> I'm writing like a paper or a brief or something, I always am watching something. I don't know what <laughs> people think I really watch TV because I really just don't have time to sit down and just watch TV. It's kind of sad. Um, but I'm always <laughs> watching things in the background. So, and I somehow I can track both and I'm actually more productive in my writing when there's, when there's something on TV or whatever in the background. I love so like, but is it like, what's on in the background though? Like, is it selling sunset no, or is no, it it's not. It's like documentaries? I love documentaries. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, wow. I was thinking, I, you know, I watch, I was imagining you like watching trash in the background no, and then like not. writing these like beautiful white not papers. Always. It's documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I don't like to watch. I just, I, I, I will watch almost anything, but I do not do fantasy stuff or like sci-fi. I can't do it. And it's problematic for me. I have three boys who love this stuff. And I'm just like, nope. (laughs) And they try to explain it to me. And I'm like, nope. I don't get it. And I don't want to get it. (laughs) You know what might be like a fun intro for you? Because I feel the same way. I don't know if you've ever... Like when you were younger, did you ever watch that show Roswell? Do you know? Does it it ring a bell? They they just redid. It was on the CW. Remember the CW back in the day Mm -hmm. had like Buffy and everything? Um, they did it. They did a new one. It was, it's Roswell, Roswell, New Mexico, I think is the Netflix Mm -hmm. title. But anyway, that would, it's like a a step into sci-fi, but I, it's still like got a lot of, you know, romantic stuff and enough to keep you uh, occupied. That's not super sci-fi. It's probably not good to publicly (laughs) admit that as a reading researcher, I can't also do Harry Potter. I cannot do Harry Potter. It's too. Oh my gosh, you're gonna be banned now by like everyone. (laughs) I appreciate. I appreciate a Harry Potter has brought a lot of joy to young children's adolescence reading, but it's not bringing joy to me. (laughs) That's okay. You know your boundaries. Mm Respect it. So, So I think our last question, um, and then I actually think I'd like to ask you one more. But our question here is: um, Why do you both? do what you love for education or for literacy or for Virginia? Go, Emily. Okay. You go. <laughs> well, I, you know, this has been my life's work, literacy. I like to, I like to joke that I know a lot about one thing. I only know about literacy and reading. Um, and so, you know, I just truly, you know, my guiding principle is that every child deserves access to the right materials to learn how to read. And every decision that I make in my career and, and frankly, daily about what things I'm going to engage in and not and how I'm going to lead the folks that are on my team is really, that's what I think about. Is this the right step 
and there's sometimes they're very small things and sometimes they're huge things. Um, is this the right thing to do to make sure we're making an impact for families and children and teachers? So that's what drives me every day. And when I, you know, I'm up late at night thinking about, which I am, thinking about literacy, um, you know, the things that I think about are, are, are really associated with, are we doing the right thing? Are we making the right steps? And we're not always making the right steps, right? I think that's really important to think about. We don't make the right steps all the time but you have to have enough self-awareness to correct. Um, and, and sort of you're always thinking about how do we sort of correct what we've done and how do we move forward? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, I started off in my journey before I was on the school board as a volunteer with other young moms um, when my kids were little bitty. So my daughter, I have three kids. My daughter, when I was elected to the school board, was 14 months old and she's almost 13 now. Um, but I started as a volunteer in uh, an apartment community that had mainly single female-led households, and the moms who were there were doing the absolute best they could, but they just didn't have the time to show up to a school board meeting and complain or to you know, be at school during the day to volunteer or to go on the field trip. They were working, most of them, you know, multiple jobs. And just walking alongside as another mom with them, I was like, man, I do have my day job. I'm an attorney. I was like, I have a voice. I can advocate. And my kid may not need it, but the three kids sitting at the lunch table with my child needs someone who can show up to a meeting. And that's really where my passion came from was about, you know, seeing that I have a, a gift to advocate and it's important because every parent I believe is doing the absolute best they can for their child. We just all have different gifts, different talents, different resources. And so we should share that with each other. You know, we all want every kid in our community to be successful. So let's work together to make that happen. That's been my philosophy and why I keep, you know, fighting for things. I don't have any more K through three children in my house. Mine are all high school and middle school, but I know how important it is. And we, you know, we'll keep fighting for all of our children. Well, we can't thank you both enough for everything that you did for Virginia, and hopefully that will push other states to do some similar work as well. Um, before we leave, is there any last like parting words or any advice you would give to anyone else that's in this work? I might just say that while the bill getting to law was a ton of work, the real work is implementation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that <Facts>. is, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, getting to the law was huge. It is absolutely huge. But now the part of like, how do we do this on the ground? And how do you, how do you guide system level change? Um, is That's how we get change for kids in the classrooms and parents and families. That's how we do this. And so thinking that through, I think is, you know, really very important. And then that requires a large group of people. Um, who are coming together to collaborate. Oh my gosh. Well, we're so grateful. And honestly, I'm inspired and exhausted, like Melissa said. So we can't thank you enough for all that you've done to pave the way here for lots of other states to follow and just think, and all the children in Virginia that and teachers that are going to be so empowered because of the laws that you're working to pass and that you have also passed. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday. Sign up to stay connected with us at literacypodcast.com. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. 
We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.